I think organizations just need to understand that just because something is outsourced to a partner, that you still need to allocate resources and time to actually manage that partnership, which is right in line with the communication piece. If you don't manage your partner, they'll manage you. They may or may not do a great job of it. Experts that do this every single day, they live and breathe this. It doesn't make any sense to try and have a, a full-fledged reverse engineer when your sock is never, and by never I'm saying like once a quarter, getting compiled malware that would need to be reverse engineered. Ship that off to a one-time cost for the analysis. Threat intelligence, for example, is an incredibly broad field that requires not only a strong skill set, but also just a wealth of information to be had, right? Most organizations aren't going to have the detailed knowledge of breaches that are happening and, you know, the things that you hear in the news. A whole other set of information about breaches that you're not seeing in the news, right? Like unreported attacks and targeting. Hi, and welcome all to episode two of the Skills Gap series, part of Mandiant's Defenders Advantage podcast, where we focus on ideas and initiatives for narrowing the skills gap in cybersecurity. I'm your host, Chris Campbell. I lead global talent acquisition for Mandiant. And joining me for today's panel discussion around talent and bridging the skills gap in cybersecurity are Dan Nutting. Dan is a manager of cyber defense optimization team for Mandiant. Dan specializes in building, transforming security operations centers for large corporations. And prior to Mandiant, Dan was an information system security officer in the U.S. Coast Guard and the SOC manager for a Fortune 100 company. So thanks for joining us, Dan. Good to be here. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Also joining us is Cal Gantuku. Cal is a manager of security operations consulting for Mandiant. He has spent the past six years at Mandiant building, maturing, and operating security operations teams for our customers. Prior to Mandiant, Cal was lead security engineer for a Japanese MSSP. Thanks for joining us as well, Cal. Good to have you. Hey, absolutely. Appreciate it. And last but certainly not least, joining us also today is Chris Linklater. Chris is a director of consulting for Mandiant and has over 20 years of experience in the information technology and cybersecurity fields. He has spent the past four years at Mandiant helping build an incident response remediation and security architecture practice globally. And prior to Mandiant, Chris was an infrastructure engineering support and operations leader within a Fortune 50 organization. So, Thanks for joining us as well today, Chris. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, looking forward to it. Likewise, likewise. Well, it's really great to have you all on the panel today. And with that, I'm just going to really jump right into the first question. Maybe Dan will have you kick it off. Questions for you. What do you think is at the core of the skills gap in cybersecurity that we often hear about? probably have a pretty unpopular opinion here because when I work with different clients, one of the things I most consistently see is we try to proceduralize every single aspect of cyber defense. And the reason for that, as one of my bitter uh, clients uh, put it as, we try to do meatbag automation. We want to throw as many bodies at it as possible. And because we don't have the capability of making sure that these bodies are really well educated, not just trained, but educated as to what the problems are and how they can go about addressing it, uh, it becomes an intractable, unscalable issue as we have more and more threats, more and more logs that need to be assessed, more and more alerts that need to be looked at. And I think we're dealing with this because 
instead of looking for creative people, individuals that have critical thinking, we're instead just looking for people who can follow procedures. And maybe the rare few of those can write the procedures for the rest of that meatbag automation, that terrible, terrible term. But that's how we're treating so many people, at least within the blue team side of cyber defense. And if we want to address that, that skills gap, we really need to look at, it's not a labor gap. And I'm, I think I'm stealing a term here from Cal, so I'll let him follow up. It's a skill gap. It's the ability to actually process the problem that needs to be addressed. No, absolutely. And, and obviously he teed you up, Cal, so I'll just let you kind of uh, take that same question. Yeah, absolutely. Dan knows that I love being pedantic. So that's probably where he got that from. Because my big thing is, you know, I hear two terms, right? The cybersecurity skills gap and a talent shortage. And, you know, go to LinkedIn or, you know, Forbes articles or whatever. And I see, see them used like synonymously way too often, right? Like one, like Dan was saying, implying that labor isn't available and the other implying that the labor isn't ideal. And the cause of that seems like too different things, right? Or maybe a combination of two things. One is like the rapid adoption of new technology. And, you know, I know the pandemic has been used as a scapegoat for a lot of different things in society, but really it's caused a lot of businesses over the past couple of years to re-architect their infrastructure, redefine how they do business. And now everybody's looking for things like cloud security engineers or automation engineers or people familiar with zero trust or any other number of like buzzwordy trends. So, it's compounded a little bit by how talent is defined and who does the defining. So there seems to be like a skills gap, if you will, to amongst corporate non-technical recruiters to be able to identify like transferable and related skills from qualified candidates, right? And I, I can't blame them, right? They're not trained for it. If you see a resume that has Azure experience, is the recruiter going to know that that person can likely easily be trained on the finer details of GCP or somebody that has SASE on the resume implies a knowledge of zero trust, right? So so everyone's out here looking for unicorns, uh, you know, that match 100% of the job description right. when there might be a good portion of applicants that would be a good fit for the role. No, absolutely. And I think we even talked about that on the last podcast, how some of the things we just need to focus on is really changing our expectations a little bit, maybe not have the uh, 20 plus requirements, right? So no, that's that's great. Chris, same question for you. What do you think is at the core of the skills gap in cybersecurity? Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously complex and, you know, sort of a multifactorial situation. But I think one area where we, we tend to not acknowledge is that a lot of the skills gap is self-inflicted. And this may not apply as much in the consulting world, but as people, as creators, we're very good at creating new and better technology. We're very bad at sunsetting old technology. So, you know, every time that we bring a new tool into our environment or, you know, pick a new technology, say we're going to bring in containers, uh, well, guess what? We still have servers, right? We still have the old things. And so suddenly we don't just need server people, we need server people and container people, right? And so I think if organizations would take a step back and look and say, hey, maybe, maybe we'll sit this round out and we'll do sort of that every other, you know, iteration of new technology, there might be a, a way to say, look, we've got the skills to do what we're doing today. You know, there's an opportunity cost of, of bringing something new in and that we're, we're suddenly going to have a skills gap that, that we just created for ourselves, maybe maybe unknowingly. Right. Yeah. No, that makes makes perfect sense. Well, I'll, I'll just uh, jumping into the, the next question that I wanted to ask you all as well, too, is 
What are what are some of the skills that organizations think they need in house, but maybe really better executed through external support or partners? I think I'll jump on this one because I, I can speak from experience of making some bad decisions here. When I was uh, working on building the blue team capabilities at my previous organization, man, there was this litany of the the cool, the awesome that I really wanted to dig into. And I wanted to learn all of it. And I wanted to get my team to learn all of it. And we built out a malware analysis lab. We got Ida Pro licenses. And I can count on one hand over the course of five years, the number of times we actually leveraged Ida Pro against a threat. That doesn't make any sense. Why did we spend all of this money to have such a robust technical malware analysis capability when we weren't actually executing it regularly, even weekly or monthly? Now, at the time, that was before you could easily ship off malware to sandboxes. Sandboxes were just coming around. Third-party forensic capabilities were just starting to pop up, and they hadn't really been proven yet. But now, now that we have the, both these automated tools and these manually operated capabilities with experts, experts that do this every single day, they live and breathe this, it doesn't make any sense to try and have a, a full-fledged reverse engineer when your sock is never, and by never I'm saying like once a quarter, getting compiled malware that would need to be reverse engineered ship that off to a one-time cost for the analysis, have a third party who can do that analysis completely and without necessarily needing a lot of additional contextual information. Malware is generally fairly easy to operate in a box without needing to know a lot about your organization. So that would be the first thing that I would offload to a third party is malware analysis, that deep, deep detailed malware analysis. Got it. No, that makes perfect sense. And same question for you. What skills do you uh, do organizations think they need in-house, which may be really better executed through an external support or partnership? Yeah, no, along the same lines of Dan, right? Like malware analysis being kind of that next level effort. A lot of those similar next level efforts are, are very good candidates for outsourcing, right? Like things like threat hunting or threat intelligence and red teaming. Um, threat intelligence, for example, is an incredibly broad field that requires not only a strong skill set, but also just a wealth of information to be had, right? Most organizations aren't going to have the detailed knowledge of breaches that are happening. And, and, you know, the things that you hear in the news, a whole other set of information about breaches that you're not seeing in the news, right? Like unreported attacks and targeting. So that lack of information makes it incredibly difficult for an organization to maintain a successful like threat intel capability to do things like attribution, right? And accurately provide related intel uh, for something they see in their environment. You know, for, for red teaming as well, right? Like we talked about that as like a next level capability for an organization, really any Anything like that that tester controls is an example of something that requires an external view, right? Like an objective view to like truly give you impartial results. Now that makes perfect sense. Same question for you, Chris, as well, too. Anything to elaborate on where companies may be better suited to go with external support or partnerships? 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's funny. I, th I think we're all going to have just about the same answer, which is, you know, identify which items are critical to your sort of core business or your core intellectual property. And, and those are the things that you want to have in, in house. And then the things that you don't do often, or, you know, it's too expensive to maintain the capability. Those are the things that you would look, look outside for. And, and the two examples that I came up with were, you know, incident response is a great example of this. Having, having someone on retainer is just a fantastic idea. You know, the number of incidents that most organizations are going to work is, is few and far between, probably less than, less than the malware reverse uh, analysis. Dan's example. Um, the other, the other area where I think um, there's a lot of consideration is most organizations aren't big enough or global enough to support uh, 24 by 7. So if there's anything where you do need 24 by 7, 365 coverage, um, that's a good opportunity to look at like an MSSP to, to help fill that need. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And and just kind of looking at the opposite end of that spectrum, where companies might think they need an external partner, but but really are better suited to have in-house resources. Can you give us some examples of that? Maybe this time I'll start with with you, Chris. I think there's a number of org I mean, I think Dan gave the best example when he answered the question before. I mean, uh, there's a lot of organizations that maybe leadership came from from one place where functionality was necessary, and so they bring that into a, to a smaller company, and they'll stand up some capability that that they don't need. So I think the best way for organizations to to go about that is appreciate that there's not a one size fits all, uh, and it's important to sort of understand what services you need to provide out to the rest of the business and, and really understand what your threat model is and, and make sure that you've, you know, you've staffed your team with uh, people that are capable of managing that threat model. Got it. And Dan, the same question for you, just kind of looking at where companies might think an external partner is the, the way to go, but, but really are better served to have in-house in uh, resources. I think a lot of that the dividing line for me is whether or not the knowledge of the organization, that landscape is relevant to the task and the operations. So I, I have a conflicting opinion uh, with the MSSP. A lot of MSSPs don't operate with that organizational landscape knowledge, but they should. They're, they're dealing with alerts that are questioning, why was this account used? Well, if the account is a honey token account, but it's not clear, clearly defined in the documentation of the MSSP, they're not going to process that correctly. Whereas the organic security operations capability should hopefully have that tacit knowledge. Some of that's going to be driven by documentation, whether or not the organization is capturing this information effectively, communicating it effectively. Are they holding the MSSP accountable? Are they keeping the MSSP up to date as these changes are being made. And these challenges aren't unique to MSSPs and third parties at all. They're, they're absolutely consistent with internal security operators who are often left in the dark and not advised to changes. But there's a little less siloing when it's internal. So if we can you know, effectively identify when landscape knowledge is necessary to be effective, and when it's not necessary to be effective, I think that really helps to answer that. I'm generally not a fan of MSSPs for that reason. And part of that is, what? how is your MSSP incentivized? Are they actually going to be looking out for your organization's best interest? Are they helping to tune? Are they helping to resolve the threats? Or do they want you addicted to their service? A good, honest company is going to help you get better and more mature 
And I'm not sure that necessarily presents well in the typical MSSP relationship. Got it. Yeah, that's a good one to think about. Cal, I'll ask you the same question as well, too. You, where, where do you think companies might be better served with in-house resources? Well, I think this is a problem that's not unique to cybersecurity, right? And so when a company is looking at you know what they want to outsource, I think the question that they really have to ask themselves is how much change is acceptable? right, for the business process they're trying to offload, because there's rarely going to be a case where outsourcing a capability is going to be a seamless handoff. And outsourcing that capability, it means that it's going to be run exactly as it was before, right? So you have to think about how much it's going to affect the service, how much that process can absorb that change, uh, how much it's going to degrade services to other business units that might be relying on it, right? So if, if your business process can't, you know, handle much deviation, then my recommendation is not to outsource it. But if it's something that's flexible, low risk, low impact to other business units, it is a prime candidate for outsourcing. So it's less about one specific service and more about how that process is done in your environment. Got it. Moving on to the next question, and Cal, maybe we'll start with you this time, is what things should organizations consider and or prepare for so that external services are useful? You know, for example, is your tech stack uh, aligned with your partners or are you running a custom operating system for your point of sales terminals, things of that nature? And Cal, again, starting with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a strong component of communication being the number one factor of success, you know, when working with any third party, right? So it's it's very easy for requirements like the ones that you mentioned to be lost amongst the you know many sales pitches or uh, even derailed by diving deep into one area of focus, for, you know, whether that's you know intentionally by the, the the vendor or if it's something the executives want you to focus on. It's very easy to take just a cursory glance at the rest of your requirements that are critical for success, right? So if your requirements and expectations can't be clearly uh, articulated in like a written format before it's agreed upon in advance, it's just going to be a recipe for, you know, heartache and friction between the two org- organizations. Along the same lines of something, you know, Dan said earlier is you need to ensure that the third party has context of the business. And that context is going to come from uh, easy access to like internal stakeholders to help guide the work, right? So if that provider is, you know, net new to the company, it has no context for what's normal for your organization, not giving them those tools to succeed and being very clear about what the expectations are for success is just going to lead to disaster. Right. Chris, I'll throw the the same question to you as well, too. Maybe some things that organizations could some, should consider or prepare for for external services. This isn't far off from, from Cal's opinion. You know, I think organizations just need to understand that just because something is outsourced to a partner, that you still need to allocate resources and time to actually manage that partnership, which is right in line with the communication piece. If you don't manage your partner, they'll manage you. They may or may not do a great job of it. And so, I mean, every time we have a conversation with some of our managed services, you know, we we start diving into a situation where something didn't go great. 99 out of 100 times, it's because, you know, the communication broke down between the two parties. And so just making sure that organizations have somebody internal that's still dedicated to manage the service that's being provided, I think is, is critical. No, that makes perfect sense. And obviously, the more you can be prepared and align going in, you know, the better everyone will be in the end, right? So Dan, yeah, Dan absolutely. I'm going to throw... 
throw the same one to you as well too. What are some of the things that you think organizations should consider when preparing for external resources? So I will also throw my hat into the communications aspect uh, to double up on that uh, vendor scorecards is a best practice that I've seen be used really, really well. And in particular, that enables communications and conversations about what's going well and what's not going well before renewal time. Vendors hate finding out at renewal time that they haven't been meeting the customer's needs. They would rather have that uncomfortable conversation early. And developing the scorecard so that they know what they're being measured against really helps them hold themselves accountable before it even gets awkward, before it becomes uncomfortable. And then I want to dig back into the tech stack element, making sure, let's say you've gone with an MSSP. Can the MSSP actually reach in and pull the artifacts that they need to do their analysis? Are they able to leverage your EDR tools? Are they able to understand the Linux variations that you have? Do they have expertise in that? Being able to reflect that tech stack with whom you expect to be your experts. And don't take the vendor's word for it. Challenge them on it. This is what the tabletop exercises are really, really good for. Going through the motions, not just notionally, but practically to say, all right, we pulled some memory from this weird box that we have in the manufacturing sector. MSSP, you said you'd be able to forensicate this. Here, let's see what you're able to produce. That's going to be a little uncomfortable, especially at first, but it's going to drive the right behavior early into that relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously you mentioned in scorecards is what I honed in, in on. Obviously, if there's objectives and or KPIs, if you will, that are measurable, that's, that's, that's a huge one to make sure everyone's aligned as well too. So good. Well, I, one last question for each of you. And uh, this one may be a little more fun. I don't, I, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but the question is, what are some of the skills that analysts are missing right out of college? Dan, I'll just let you start with this one. Sure thing. So the reason I'm laughing is uh, we went through so many interviews in my in my last job. We were one of the few employers that were actually bringing people in who were new to cybersecurity, fresh out of school uh, for various levels. And amusingly, oftentimes the applicants who did not have degrees were better equipped than the ones who did have degrees, which I think is apocryphal within the the cybersecurity employment space. We, We say that a lot, but that was really what we experienced, at least at the time. In particular, we had one applicant we interviewed. He had a master's in cybersecurity. And we asked him, so what's the difference between an IP address and a MAC address? And he paused for a moment and said, well, IP is for Windows and MAC is for Apple's. And you know what? It's okay if you don't understand the difference between an IP and address and a MAC address. That's not for the normal person to care about. But it is vitally important to be able to speak the language and the lexicon within the cybersecurity profession to understand something that is really a core basic tenet of networking and computing. We started to provide some bias against graduate students because of that one interview. We, we had to counter that bias. We had to make sure that we were reaching out. And one of the things that we did is we, we connected with a local college and said, hey, uh, you want to establish a cybersecurity focus for your computer science? We want to hire cybersecurity people. Can we influence your curriculum? Can we help you come up with labs so that your students are actually leveraging the software that we leverage? 
So we were making sure that the students got exposed to the SIM technology we used, Wireshark, uh, different basic forensic concepts. And it's, it changed the, the way the students were looking at cybersecurity because they had been seeing cyber attacks as though they were magic spells being cast by a hacker with a wand and they just magically do something. When you use some of these hacker tools, it feels that way. You don't actually know why these attacks are happening. But when we were able to influence that curriculum and we were able to drive some of those labs with actual attacks, actual threats that the organization saw, and said, all right, let's break this down. Why did this work? How did this happen? Uh, we started getting some really solid applicants from that local college who were already exposed to the same tools that we were already using. So overall, I, the biggest skill is critical thinking. Asking why. Why is it working this way? Why is it not working this way? What's going on? And then just general exposure to some real-world tools. A lot of academia, academia... It, takes time to build a curriculum. And if you're not partnering with the corporations to make sure that your curriculum is recent and valid, that's going to cause your students to be a step behind a lot of the other applicants. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to throw the same question to you, Cal. Uh, what are some skills that analysts are missing right out of college? Personally, I think one of the hardest things to train and try and provide context on for a new employee, especially one straight out of college, is the academic model versus the working model, right? It's that Disney moment of, you know, going out into the real world and finding out how things are done <laughs> in real life, you know, along with some non-technical skills that they might be missing in order to accomplish an objective, right? So they might be taught, like, maybe why you should VLAN off a portion of the network, right, with different data sensitivities, but they're not really taught how to defend that in a change control meeting, you know, how to deal with, you know, bellicose IT counterparts that think segmentation makes their job harder, how to evangelize, you know, this th this security mindset to non-security employees. Um, there's quite a lot of like day-to-day -day obstacles, which might seem like some a logical change on paper is not so easy to accomplish in real life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, and same for you. Any things notable in your experience that analysts might be missing out of school? Yeah. I mean, I think one disservice that, that a lot of the universities do to their, their new graduates is tell them how smart they are now that they're a college graduate. I think the, the only thing I can guarantee to the, the new people that are coming onto my team as I hire them is that um, the only guarantee I can make you is things are going to change. The only thing I'm really looking for is somebody who has you know a, a high intellect level but has a learning personality, right? There are certain people that love to learn, and th those are the people that that I'm always targeting uh, when I'm looking for folks. Maybe the other thing that I, I've seen a little bit that that plays on on Cal's answer is, yeah, communication skills are, are generally a gap. You know, I think most most universities, you know, you have to do like a, a public speaking class for you know where you, you give a 15 minute speech about taking someone to the zoo or something like that. I think. That communication piece is really important uh, early on in your career um, as you have to sort of communicate, especially in an analyst role where you're potentially communicating something that's critical uh, to a person who's in leadership who has to make a decision based on the information that you're providing them. So those are probably the, the two biggest things that, that I've observed with younger people coming right out of college. Uh, that's really great feedback and input from all of you. And, and and I'm the same way. Like a lot of times when we're looking for folks, like it's, it, I look for folks that are hungry and passionate and optimistic. And, you know, those, those three things are sort of uh, 
what sets people apart, in my opinion. So always good too when you know there's things that you need to learn to to be hungry to learn. And in our business, it's always changing, so you've got to be hungry. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I really appreciate uh, everyone's time today. This is uh, some really great insights from all of you, and thanks for thanks for your time and joining us today. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.